The sermon text today is Genesis chapter 5. The New Testament reading will be Luke chapter 3, uh, verse 23, and also verses 30 through 38. Genesis 5 and Luke 3, 23. Let's give ourselves now to the reading of God's most holy word. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when, he, when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he had fathered Kenan 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he had fathered Mahalalel 840 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he had fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived, at, lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years. And he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lemech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lemech 782 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lemech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord God has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands." Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Let us go now to Luke chapter 3 and look at verse 23 along with verses 30 through 38. Luke 3 beginning in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, 
the son of Heli. Look at verse 30 now. The son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elikim, the son of Mela, the son of Minah, the son of Mathatha, Matatha, I think is how you say it, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Sala, the son of Nation, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arpexad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Thus far the reading of God's most holy word, we pray that the Lord would bless the preaching of it today and our application of it to our lives as well. In my opinion, when reading Genesis 5, there are two things that typically jump off the page and grab the attention of the reader. One, the lifespan of those who lived prior to the flood, and two, the repetition of the phrase, and he died. Let me begin, therefore, by addressing the question, how are we to understand the claim that those who lived prior to the flood aged so slowly? According to Genesis 5, these men did not conceive children until much later in life, and they also lived for hundreds of years. For example, we are told that Adam lived to the age of 930. Methuselah died at the age of 969. He is known for being the oldest man mentioned in the Scriptures. Uh, some claim that these numbers refer not to the age of individuals, but to the length of particular dynasties, which these individuals uh, represent. The idea would be then that the dynasty of Adam lasted for 930 years, and the dynasty of Methuselah lasted for 969. Others claim that the numbers are in some way symbolic, uh, but in my opinion there is nothing at all in the text of Scripture that would give us permission to interpret these numbers in those ways. Instead, I think it is best to understand that those who lived prior to the flood did in fact live for a very long time. In, in Genesis chapter 6 we will learn that in those days corruption was increasing upon the earth, and the wickedness of man increased to the point that God said, among other things, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. So here God, as he is concerned with the increasing wickedness on earth, says that the lifespan of man is now going to be limited. After this, God sent the flood. And after the flood, the lifespan of man grew progressively shorter until it came to be what it is today. Uh, rarely do men and women live to the age of 120. According to the scriptures, prior to the flood, man lived for much longer. Two, let me say a word about the repetition of the phrase, and he died, that we find here in Genesis 5. As I read it out loud to you, without a doubt, it stuck out, did it not? Uh, and he died, and he died, and he died, is the repeated phrase. Uh, you'll notice that this whole chapter is highly structured. The genealogy of Adam follows this pattern. When so-and-so lived this many years, he fathered this person, 
and after he fathered this person, so and so lived for this much longer, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus the total number of years for so and so were this, and he died. Uh, this is the structure of Genesis chapter 5 and the genealogy of Adam that is found there. The phrase, and he died, stands out as it brings almost all of these little sections to a conclusion. I think the structure of Genesis 5 should remind us of the structure of Genesis 1. And do you remember how structured that chapter was when describing to us the creation of the heavens and the earth? There is a pattern to Genesis 1, just as there is a pattern to Genesis 5. And I think the repetition of the phrase, and he died in Genesis 5, should remind us of the repetition of the phrase, and God saw that it was good in Genesis 1. When God created the heavens and the earth, everything was good. It was good, good, indeed, very good, we learned. But now not everything is good. Man sinned, the wages of sin is death, and so the phrase that is repeated in this chapter is, and he died, and he died, and he died. Uh, furthermore, the phrase, and he died, must be considered in light of what was said in Genesis 2, 15 through 17. Remember, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The repetition of the phrase, And he died, in the genealogy of Adam, is communicating that no longer is everything good, as it was when God created the heavens and the earth. And it also makes it clear that the serpent was a liar when he spoke to the woman and called into question the word of God, saying, you will, you will surely not die, or you will not surely die, Genesis 3-4. Uh, the serpent lied, but God's word is what proved to be true. For it was God who warned Adam, saying, In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The man, the woman, and indeed all of their descendants died when Adam ate of the forbidden fruit. They died in that they immediately entered into a state of death, having been alienated from the presence of God. This happened to them on that day. And they would eventually experience physical death unless the Lord would intervene. From dust man was taken, and to dust the man returned. It is surprising to me how many of the sons and daughters of Adam live their lives today without giving thought to their mortality. One thing is certain, we will all experience death unless the Lord returns. The last words concerning our life on this planet will almost certainly be, and he died, or and she died. And so how important it is for us to square with this reality and to live our lives in light of it. And not only should we live our lives in light of the fact that we will experience physical death, but also in light of the fact that after we die, we will stand before our Maker to give an account. Friends, you do not want to stand before God in your sins. Surely no one will escape eternal judgment if they stand before God in their sins on Judgment Day. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. You must have your sins washed away. You must be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, which is received by faith alone. I cannot help but think that the repetition of the phrase, And He died, in Genesis 5, is meant to press upon us the fact of our mortality, so that we might run to Christ the promised one, for refuge. He alone is the Savior of the world. 
He is the only mediator between God and man, for He is the one who has atoned for sins. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Although the ages of these men and the repetition of the phrase, and He died, are the features of this text which tend to grab the attention of the reader, I would suggest to you that the central message of this text is found elsewhere. In other words, the point of this text, the main point of it, is not to state the fact that men lived a long time prior to the flood, nor that men died after the fall, but that God was faithful to preserve a righteous line in the midst of ever-increasing wickedness in the world. The point of the passage that we are today considering is that God, by His grace, was faithful to preserve a people who called upon His name, and these people He would bring to glory. Despite the fact of death, God would bring these to glory. Adam fell short of the glory of God. Adam, by sin, did not advance to the state of glory, but instead fell into the state of sin. But God, by His grace, would bring many of the sons and daughters of Adam to glory by a Redeemer, Christ Jesus our Lord. And so let us consider now this passage more carefully in order to demonstrate that this is indeed the message of the text. Firstly, notice that this is called the book of the generations of Adam that we are considering. Uh, that is what we read in Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And notice three things about that little phrase. One, this marks the beginning of the second of the ten major sections of the book of Genesis that is after the prologue. Uh, there are ten uh, major sections to the book of Genesis. In the first, the generations of the heavens and the earth were described to us, beginning in 2.4. In the next section, after this one, we will begin to consider the generations of Noah. You will see that in 6.9. But here in 5.1, we find the genealogy of Adam. Two, notice that this heading is slightly different from the other nine. When it refers to the generations of Adam as a book, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Most scholars would agree that Moses probably had access to a reference, perhaps a tablet, which preserved the genealogy of Adam. And so he is now giving us uh, this record. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Three, notice that verses one and two summarize what was said to us in more detail concerning the creation of man in Genesis chapter one. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And so there is a transition here at the beginning of Genesis chapter 5. And, and I would ask you this, isn't it striking that Adam, the one who broke the covenant of works, who fell into sin and who entered into death, has a genealogy? Isn't it astonishing, striking, surprising that this Adam through whom death came that he has a genealogy at all. And this is by the grace of God alone. And isn't it striking that when Adam is introduced here at the head of this genealogy, and indeed all genealogies, 
His rebellion is not even mentioned, is it? Did you, do you see this here in the opening verses? His rebellion is not even mentioned. To the contrary, instead of being reminded of Adam's sin, we are reminded that Adam was God's creature who was made in God's likeness. And I ask you, is this not a remarkable introduction to Adam's genealogy, given all that we have heard concerning the sin of Adam in Genesis chapter 3 and the corruption that spread upon the earth through one of his sons in Genesis 4? Adam is introduced to us here as God's special creature, made in his likeness and blessed of God. And he is still described in this way even after we learn that he fell into sin. This section smells of God's grace from the start, I think. Secondly, notice that this is the genealogy of Adam, but it is traced through Seth, his righteous son. This is the genealogy of Adam, traced through Seth, his righteous son. In verse 3 we read, When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And it must be remembered that Seth was not Adam's only son. In fact, Seth is the third-born son of Adam. First, Adam fathered Cain, uh, then Abel. And after Cain killed the righteous man Abel, Seth was born. Uh, this was all described to us in Genesis 4, which concluded with these words, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is how things concluded in Genesis chapter 4. But at the beginning of Genesis chapter 5, we see that things pick up with the genealogy of Adam, specifically traced through Seth, the one who was given to take the place of the righteous man Abel. Earlier in Genesis 4, uh, the genealogy of Cain was presented to us, and it was clear as we studied that passage that Cain and his descendants were wicked. They built cities, not to the glory and honor of God, but to promote their own name, independent of God. The seventh in the line of Cain, his name was Lamech. He disrupted God's original design for the family by taking to himself two wives. And he was also a tyrant who perverted justice. Instead of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he boasted to his two wives that he put a young man to death merely for wounding him. So instead of promoting justice, a life for a life, he put a young man to death simply because this young man had wounded him. In some way. And so this king, Lemech, used the sword unjustly. Uh, the murderous Cain and his descendants were wicked. They sought to advance not the kingdom of God on earth, but their own kingdoms. They sought to build not the city of God, but the city of man. Their passion was to promote not the name of God, but their own name. This we learned in Genesis chapter 4. It should be noted that Adam then did produce two lines, one through his son Cain and also one through his son Seth. And according to the customs of this world, it should have been the line of Cain, the firstborn son that was ultimately attributed to Adam. According to the customs of the world, we should expect that uh, to read, these are the generations of Adam, Adam fathered Cain, etc., etc. But the scriptures do not present things in that way. 
It is the line of Seth, the thirdborn, who took the place of the secondborn Abel, who was martyred, that is attributed to Adam. It is the line of Seth that is attributed to Adam. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth, we are told. And so it should be clear to all that the genealogy of Adam through the line of Seth is meant to be contrasted with the genealogy of Cain that we have already considered. And when the two lines are compared, it becomes clear that Cain's line was unrighteous and Seth's was righteous. Whereas Cain and his descendants sought to promote their own name, Seth and his descendants called upon the name of the Lord. What does this mean except that they worship the Lord publicly and they were happy to take his name upon themselves, to have it as a banner over them, if you will. These, the descendants of Seth, called upon the name of the Lord. Let us consider the genealogy of Adam as traced through Seth and see uh, that these believed upon the promises of God. These worshiped God. They walked with God. They called upon His name. Indeed, Seth and his descendants had their sins washed away and were clothed in the righteousness of Christ as they believed upon Him. You might have a question after hearing that last remark. How can it be said that these believed upon Christ, given that they lived so long before the Christ was ever born, and the answer to that question is that though the Christ had not yet been born, He was present in the world in the form of promise. God had given His word that a Savior would come. And these believed upon the Savior as they believed upon the promises of God held forth to them in the gospel. Stated just a bit differently, they were clothed in the righteousness of Christ in the same way that Adam, in, excuse me, in the same way that Abraham was. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Romans 4 3. As it was for Abraham that he was accounted as righteousness through faith in God and in the promises of God concerning a coming Redeemer, so too it was for Adam and his descendants through Seth and that line. They believed upon God, and it was accounted to them, accredited to them as righteousness. Abraham, and with him Seth, and Enoch, and Noah, indeed all who were made righteous prior to the coming of the Christ, believed upon the Christ through the promise of God that He would provide a Redeemer. Where is the evidence then that the righteous, uh, that the righteous uh, line uh, was preserved in the line of Seth? Well, the first clue was given at the very end of chapter 4 when we heard that Seth was born to take the place of righteous Abel. Abel was received by God, remember. Cain killed him. Seth was given to take his place. And it was there in Genesis 4.26 that we were told that Seth fathered Enosh. And what are we told of him? That at that time, people began to, began to call upon the name of the Lord. These worshipped the Lord. These took his name to themselves. They were the people of God living in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Secondly, notice the emphasis placed upon Seth being an image bearer of God in verse 3. Adam was made in the image of God, and when Adam fathered Seth, this image was passed along to him, so that it might be said that Seth too was an image bearer 
of God. And yes, it is true that all who descended from Adam to this present day bear God's image, distorted as it may be by sin. But here I am pointing out to you that this fact is emphasized regarding Seth. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Thirdly, notice the seventh person mentioned in the genealogy of Adam. Notice the seventh person mentioned in the genealogy of Adam. His name was Enoch. You have Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, and Enoch. Enoch is number seven. There was something special about that one. You probably noticed it even as I read the text through at the beginning of the sermon. In verse 22, we read that he walked with God. In verse 24, we read, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And we also notice that Enoch is the one exception to the rule. His story does not conclude with the words, and he died. The pattern is broken there uh, with Enoch. Enoch did not die. Instead, God took him. And before we discuss the meaning of this, it would be helpful to compare the Enoch in the line of Seth with the genealogy of Cain. And when we do, uh, two things stand out when we compare the genealogy of Adam through Seth with the genealogy of Adam through Cain, especially as it pertains to this number seven, Enoch. One, it should be noted that there was also something unique about the seventh person listed in the lineage of Cain. His name was Lemech. More is said about Lemech than any of the other descendants of Cain, and so the, the genealogy is flowing on, number one, two, three, four, five, six, and then when it comes to seven, more information is given about that one in both the genealogy of Adam through Cain and Adam through Seth. Adam through Cain, number seven, is Lemech, and what we find with him is uh, that uh, Lemech is the pinnacle and epitome of the wickedness of the line of Cain. It is Lemech who took two wives. It is Lemech who perverted justice and boasted that he killed the young man for wounding him. And what I am suggesting to you is that the line of Cain and the line of Seth are to be compared. And when you set them side by side, you see that there is something special about number seven in both of them. Number seven in Cain's line is Lemech, and he is the epitome and pinnacle of the wickedness of that line. But when you consider number seven in the line of Seth, his name is Enoch, and he is the pinnacle and epitome of the righteousness found within the line of Seth. They're to be compared and contrasted. Two, it should be noted that the Enoch of Seth has as his namesake the Enoch of Cain. Look back at 4.17. There we read, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, I think that means when Cain built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And so the Enoch in the line of Seth is clearly different from the Enoch having been, been, been born much later, the, the Enoch in the line of Cain. But he is to be compared with his namesake. And what do we find when we compare the two Enochs? The Enoch of Cain walked for himself in this world. He was involved in the construction of the city of man. And he was eager, along with his father, to make 
a name for himself. But when we consider the Enoch of the line of Seth, we find that this one walked with God. He lived in obedience to God, is what that phrase means. He lived a holy life, and he lived for God's glory. And then we learn that he did not die, for God took him. Uh, These two genealogies are to be contrasted. The line of Adam traced through Cain, and the line of Adam traced through Seth. And it becomes apparent that the one is filled with unrighteousness and wickedness, but through Seth we see that God preserved a righteous people for himself. How are we to understand this phrase, Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him? I already have alluded to the answer to that. Uh, Also, along with the absence of the often repeated refrain, and he died. Uh, I think this passage is clear enough on its own, but we might as well allow the New Testament to tell us directly. Hebrews 11.5 says this, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, there is the the issue here. There is the thing that distinguished the Enoch of Seth from the Enoch of Cain, the righteous line from the unrighteous line. The matter is faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder. Of those who seek him, Hebrews 11:5 through 6. And so here in the line of Seth, we come to this figure, Enoch. He's a righteous man. He walks with God faithfully, and God takes him before he experiences death. What a strange thing. Uh, what a strange thing. But what is being revealed to us here, except for this, and here is the point of it all, brothers and sisters. God, by his grace, would bring many sons to glory through a redeemer. The wages of sin is death. The covenant of works made with Adam in the garden was broken and shattered, and the result was death amongst Adam's posterity. But God preserved a righteous line and demonstrated in the life of Enoch in particular that he is able to bring us to glory. Glory was held before Adam in the garden. He fell short of it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Instead of advancing to glory, to that higher state of life, he fell into sin. But here, God demonstrates, even in these earliest generations, that God is able to bring His people to glory through faith in the promised Redeemer. Fourthly, see that the genealogy of Adam concludes with mention of Noah. And what will we learn of Noah In Genesis 6-8 we read, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we will see that uh, though he was surrounded by wickedness, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah also, we are told, walked with God. That is Genesis 6-9. Another evidence to the fact that this is the righteous line preserved. It goes through Enoch and, and lands with Noah And we saw that that Noah's father himself was hopeful concerning this one. This one would bring us relief. This one would bring us relief from all of our toil. That is where this genealogy concludes before a brief mention of his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so I hope that you are seeing that far from being a simple and straightforward genealogy, the genealogy of Genesis 5 communicates something to us that God was faithful to preserve for Himself a righteous line from Seth, Adam's third-born son. Uh, 
Cain was of the seed of the serpent. Through him, the evil one waged war on God and on his righteous line. When Cain killed Abel, it appeared as if the evil one would have the victory. But what did God do? He raised up another one to take his place. The same has been true throughout all of history. God has always kept for himself a people in the world. He has always preserved a a remnant. We will run into this later in, in the Old Testament. There were times where the prophets would say, God, am I the last one left? But God would say, no, I've preserved a a remnant. There are others who still call upon the name of the Lord. There are others that still have Yahweh as king. This He has done throughout history, and this He will do to the end of time. God will always have a people in the world. He will advance His church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. He will establish His kingdom. So this is the genealogy of Adam traced through Seth, his righteous son. Thirdly and lastly, this genealogy, notice, will lead to Christ, who is our righteousness. This genealogy that we are now considering will eventually lead to Christ, who is our righteousness. When interpreting Scripture, brothers and sisters, one must pay special attention to the way that Scripture interprets itself. Uh, There are many in our day who would claim that we do not know what the proper interpretation of Scripture is. For this person says that this is the proper interpretation, and this person says that this is the proper interpretation. How can we know? I guess we just have to be led by the Spirit, even though we have all of these different opinions about it, right? How can we possibly know? There are others, I think, who when they look at the pages of Holy Scripture say, well, there must be some man or some institution that God has set apart to be the only and proper interpreter of Holy Scripture. I am thinking here of, of Rome, of the Roman Catholic Church, who has the Pope and, 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 its, and, and its bishops under him, who are the only proper interpreters of, of, of Holy Scripture. Our perspective is quite different. We say that we can know what the proper interpretation of Scripture is because Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture is its own interpreter. We have to pay careful attention, therefore, to how the rest of Scripture speaks about these passages that we are now considering. What does it mean, for example, that Enoch all of a sudden was not, for God took him? Well, the book of Hebrews told us what that means. Uh, We were able to look at what the New Testament had to say about it, and, and, and what I am saying is the same is true here for this entire genealogy. What is the meaning of it? What ultimately is it pointing towards? Is it just a, a genealogy, a, a factual retelling of the descendants of Adam through Seth? Is that the point of it? What is it ultimately about? Uh, the answer is that it is ultimately about Christ. And how do we know? Because it is my opinion? No, the New Testament clearly says so. I read from Luke's Gospel at the beginning of this sermon. If you were paying careful attention to that uh, genealogy, you, you would see that Luke's Gospel demonstrates that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the true Son of God, and the true Adam. And this Luke did by tracing the genealogy of Jesus back to Adam And if we pay careful attention to the genealogy of Jesus found in Luke 3, we find that it follows the path back to Adam through whose line? Through the line of 
Seth, ultimately, that genealogy concludes by telling us that Jesus was the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who himself was the son of God. Christ is the true son of God. He is the true Adam, the second Adam, who has kept the covenant of works on our behalf, whereas the first Adam fell. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. He is the one promised from long ago. Jesus was the son of Joseph, but long before that, he was the son of Noah and Lamech and Methuselah and Enoch and Jared and Mahalalel, Cain and Enos, Seth and Adam, who was the son of God. Where Adam, the son of God, failed, Christ, the second and better Adam, the true son of God, has succeeded. Adam broke the covenant of works. He and all who are in him are dead in their sins. Jesus, the Christ, kept the covenant of works and has earned life eternal for himself and all who are united to Him by faith. This is the story of Holy Scripture. And so, friends, I'll conclude with these three points of application. The first one I must make, it is the most obvious at all of all. Are you in Christ or are you in Adam? That is the question. Are you in Christ or are you in Adam? There is no other possibility. You are either in the one or you are in the other. And how do you get in the one? That is, how do you come to be in Adam? By birth. You are born into this world in Adam. You are therefore born in sin with Adam as your federal head. You are born dead, ironically, alive physically, but dead to God. You are born with the guilt of Adam, our physical father. How do you come to be in Christ? The scriptures are clear. You come to be in Christ by faith. You come to be united in Him, to Him by faith Alone, You come to have Him as your federal head or representative uh, through faith. And so are you in Adam or are you in Christ? To be in Adam is death. To be in Christ is life everlasting. And so I must compel you to be in Christ, to find yourself united to Him, to have Him as Lord, as a banner over you. Confess your sins. Turn from them. Run to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That is what I must urge you to do. And if you have faith in Christ, I'll ask you this question. Are you living as though you are in Him? Are you walking with God and for His glory, like the Enoch of Seth? Or are you living like a child of the evil one and for the glory of your own name, like the Enoch of Cain? If we indeed have been made righteous in Christ, then let us live righteous before Him. If we have been made holy in Christ, then let us live holy before Him. Are you living for God's glory, for His pleasure? Or are you living for your own glory and for your own pleasure? This is a question that must be pressed upon all who claim to have Christ Jesus as Lord. Brothers and sisters, we must follow hard after Christ if we have Him as Lord. If He is Lord, then He needs to be Lord of all. Lord of all. And I wonder... Do you stand in awe of the fact that God has preserved a people for Himself in this world? This He has done from the time of Adam to this present day. He has always kept a remnant. As you gather each Lord's Day Sabbath to call upon the name of the Lord, are you cognizant of what it is that you are doing and how by coming to call upon the name of the Lord you are joined together with brothers and sisters in Christ in this place also with brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe but throughout all of history traced back to Adam himself and to his son Seth the righteous 
Are you, are you aware of what it is that you are connected to? Having been united to Christ by faith, you are also united to this tremendous community that God has called out of the world. He has preserved a people for Himself in the world from the beginning, and He will to the very end. This should give us confidence, brothers and sisters. Do you ever look around you into the world and say, it's all falling apart, it's all going to shambles? Well, we should take courage and have confidence in God's Word that He will preserve His people and He will establish His kingdom until that day when there is nothing but the kingdom of God, until the city of God, which has its builder as God, is brought to completion and is firmly established for all of history. What a privilege and what a high calling to have the name of the Lord as a banner over you. Friends, let us not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. Let us not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. What does that mean? It means let us not take it lightly to have God's name placed over us, but let us live for His glory, honor, and praise. Let us worship and serve Him in this world, for we are His children and He is our Father. Let us bow together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this genealogy uh, that does remind us of your faithfulness in the world. It, it, it is a testament to the fact that the gospel was present even in the days of Adam, that Christ was present, not in the flesh, but in the form of promise. What a tremendous thing, uh, Father, to think upon, that, that we are united together not only with those new covenant believers who have lived in the days and since the days of Christ, but even to Abraham and also to Adam, if we have faith in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that we would live as your holy ones in this world. Help us to stand firm against temptation. Help us to live in obedience to your word to your glory, honor, and praise. And our prayer also, Lord, is that if there are any who do not yet know Christ, who are still in Adam and in their sins, that you would draw them to faith in Jesus Christ so that they might have Christ as Lord and have life everlasting, the forgiveness of sins. It's in Jesus' precious name that we pray all of these things. And God's people say, Amen.